all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 175 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this would be the Big D and the Kids Table episode of the SLS Cast. Because it turns out, this ska band, this, you know, punk slash ska, because, you know, it can kind of go either way, depending on how you feel about ska music and punk music. They formed in 1995, but they actually made an album back in 2004. It's called How It Goes, and they have a song from that album. That song is entitled 175. And with that, a little bit of Big D and the Kids Table knowledge, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee. Tim, and I gotta say, Big D and Kids Table should not be in the same sentence together. Because whenever <laughs> I hear the words Big D, uh, I, I think of something completely different. You think of Dallas? That's what most people think of, right? <laughs> <laughs> How big is your D? Oh, you have a Dallas too? Yeah, I do. So how was your week? It sounds like you've been out hitting up the town. I I did. I, um, had, I, a friend of mine at work, uh, she had a birthday over the weekend, and I was originally going to go to her birthday party, but due to needing to work, I had to work instead. And so... Uh, we made arrangements so that her and I and her boyfriend and if my wife had wanted to come, my wife as well. Good save. To go Good save. To, you didn't invite her. <laughs> uh, to go. At, originally, the plan was to go to this amazing tiki bar that is right over here that's opened up recently by my house. And um, they... They finally got their kitchen up and running, so because of the staff changes with the new kitchen and the fact that now that they're, you know, full restaurant stuff, they've, they're no longer open on Sundays. And I was like, well, shit. So we ended up going to Barney's, for those of you who know what that is. And, well, I know one listener knows what it is. It's so a chain, Barney's right? over at 45. It's a I'm chain, sorry? right? Um, Somewhere? yeah, but, um, I mean, this one, I think, is pretty much kind of the just its own little gig at this point. But at any rate, uh, Barney's at uh, Rayford and 45, and so it is their little local hangout, and so they know all the bartenders and stuff. And we met up there last night and did some karaoke. Uh, this was Sunday night karaoke, so kind of interesting. Not too many places do that. And, um, yeah. And then let's see. Uh, so we were there very, very late into the wee hours of the morning, and I am definitely old because while I didn't get, like, blitz fucking drunk, um, I, I de we definitely got loud and ruckus and had quite a few shots and quite a few beers and um, very smoky environment, and so my voice is... My voice isn't quite as good, but I also need something to, you know, take off, take my mind off things because the 10th of April is not my favorite day uh, of the year. It's actually probably about the worst day of the year for me. And so tax day. It was nice to no, 
no um i i i don't know how often we have talked about this ever but i was married once before oh yes yes and so i have a son from that marriage his name is dallas by the way <laughs> it's a big d see i have da- there's two dallases now anyway they they're, they're multiplying they're like fucking rabbits um and his birthday is april 10th actually and uh he turned 18 18 can you believe that do i look old enough to have an 18 year old kid i mean no, you're only what 25 how's that possible i know uh well i mean religious people they do weird shit right <laughs> um no so unfortunately life isn't life doesn't always work out the way you plan and um we're not as close as i would like so it's kind of a bummer for me anyway not trying to bring down the world or anything. So, like I said, it was nice to have kind of a distraction last night and everything. And uh, Although I've been dragging ass all day today. And thank God my professor canceled class tonight because I still wasn't ready to go, even at 5 o'clock this afternoon. So two questions. Um, How many, many buttery many, nipples did you have? And what did you no, see? No, no, none, none. No, uh, no buttery nipples. I had purple passions and Jack Daniels shots, and I was drinking Coronas. It's a purple passion. Purple passion. I'm sure this is, is the birthday girl's uh, choice. Crown. Not not your choice. No, mine. Oh, really? are you, no, uh, are you kidding? I I teach I teach bartenders this drink virtually everywhere I go. This is an amazing drink. Uh, it's a story in and of itself as to how I came across and learned this drink. So we're not going to go into that. But it is Crown Sweet and Sour Razzmatazz Shake and Strain. It's an amazing, amazing, and amazing, amazing shot. Um, and it is, yes. Well, I know what we will be drinking, Matt, when we are recording the show at the beginning of June, <laughs> when I am in town. I, I, will go, I will go buy the bottle of Crown before you get here. So, anyways, yeah, so I had I, quite a few of those. In singing? What, like what did you six, sing? Six or seven of those. A few shots of Jack, probably better part of 10 or 11 beers or something like that. So it was, we were good. We were, we were good. I mean, I, like I said, I didn't get completely fucking shit faced hammered, but I was definitely good. Uh, songs that I sang, let's see, did some Jason Mraz, did, uh, uh, a little touch of Garth Brooks and then did, uh, Luke Bryan, some Luke Bryan stuff. And so you played it safe and, um, that last night. You knew you were drinking, so I'm going to play it safe with the karaoke. I'm not going to bust out my normal Madonnas or my princess. If if I had been able to stay a little bit longer, the next song was going to be Dennis Leary's Asshole. Because no matter how much alcohol I have consumed, um, I am able to do the rant with you know from memory. A friend of mine uh, named Eric, who uh, out in Houston. Whenever we would get together and it would be a karaoke atmosphere or whatever, he'd go up and he would usually start up, uh, start off with Asshole, but then he would also do a variation of Summer Lovin', the Grease song Summer Lovin', but it would be very, very phallic and inappropriate for high schoolers to perform. But yeah, he would sing a very sexualized <laughs> version of Summer Lovin', and it, it really divided the room, more so than... Asshole. Well, I also have a I have a a very close guy friend of mine, and when we're feeling froggy, we will also do summer lovin', 
and I will do the guy part and he will do the girl part and we definitely do the lovin' on the stage um, so that we... And it's not even just shock value. It's just fun for us to make people that uncomfortable while all of our friends who get who are in on the gag are just laughing their asses off. Um, so that's so you do this in public with your a good buddy of yours. Now, mm-hmm. how many times have you put your D on the kids table? And then how many times have you gotten arrested for putting the D on the kids table? There's just no good way to answer that. So I will refrain from doing so. That's right up there with, do you still beat your girlfriend? When do I not? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like either, yeah, there's just no good answer to that. Uh, so what about you, sir? Enough about me. And uh, how, how, how was your... My week has been good. Earlier on last week, I went to a screening of Everybody Wants Some, the new Richard Linkletter movie. Uh, they're calling it the spirited sequel of Days to Confused about the college baseball players in the 80s and the first few days leading up to the first day of school. I gotta say, guys, go and see it. It's probably the best movie I've seen or actually the most fun I've had at the movies since Fury Road last year. So, yeah, and they did a cool Q&A. So Scott Eastwood and Richard Linkletter were there and all the cast was there and it was cool hearing about all those stories. But... Go and see. Everybody wants some. It's a blast. But mid-last week, the significant other and I went to the Disney-owned El Capitan Theater, which is pretty much directly right across from the Egyptian, or not the Egyptian, the Chinese theater, uh, the Grauman's Chinese theater, with all, where all the handprints and footprints and stars are there on Hollywood Boulevard. And we went to go see a special presentation of Beauty and the Beast. And what we didn't realize is that it was a 25th anniversary presentation of Beauty and the Beast. Yes, I know Beauty and the Beast has been around for 25 years now. And it was a part of the El Capitan's Throwback Thursday. I don't know if it's like once a month or every couple months. On Thursdays, they show a classic Disney animated film. Or actually, just a classic Disney film in general. Uh, But they brought out the two directors and the producer. I forget the producer's name. But the two directors, Gary Truesdale and Kirk Weiss, came out. And they told us, or actually told the audience, not just me, I wish... Great stories about the two writers, Alan Menken and Howard Ashman, and the creativity that went into getting this movie made. Because for those of you who do not know, Beauty and the Beast has been the only animated film to ever be nominated in the Best Picture category at the Academy Awards. In 1991, or uh, I guess it was the 92 Oscars, it took two Oscars home, one for Best Music, Original Song for the Beauty and the Beast title song, and for original score. Another thing that the two directors were talking about that I thought was really cool is that the movie started production in the late 80s, in 1988. And by the time the film came out in 91, it was the very first film, uh, I guess I should say animated film, but pretty much the first film to ever animate a 2D image over a 3D background. An example of that is during the ballroom scene where the camera starts off with a big, beautiful, gorgeous chandelier and frame and 
the camera flips around or turns around the chandelier as it slowly pans down, and then you see Belle and the Beast dancing with one another. It's absolutely beautiful. Even 25 years later, the movie holds up wonderfully. We got talking uh, after the movie, the significant other and I, and I don't think either of us saw it at the movie theater. I know I would have been pretty young, but still... I'm kind of surprised I didn't see Beauty and the Beast at the movies. Matt, did you see Beauty and the Beast at the movie theater back in 1991? I sure did. It was the first time in my life that I had ever been in a theater and people actually clapped in the movie. In in the movie, um, And they clapped when Gaston dies. Really? Yes, the theater fucking erupted. Oh, wow. It was fantastic. Yeah, it's a great... I mean, it holds up incredibly well, although... Watching it for the first time in many, many years, I've noticed a couple things. One being that the movie is way too short and that, like, you know, more character progression would have been a little nice. And two, the Beast has been in this castle for a year or only for, like, five years. I think he's been the Beast because I think he was cursed at the age of 11. And well, I guess it's 10 years because 21 is when the curse must be broken by and so there was royalty living in that castle, and presumably royalty was over that town, the, the town that Belle is from. And yet nobody makes any notion or has no idea of the beast or the prince before the beast or even that castle, I, I, what I would guess, ruled over them. And so that was kind of a neat little story element that I picked on watching it this past week. I highly recommend you guys check it out if you haven't watched it in a good five, six, seven, eight, ten years or so. Cool. Oh, and just for shits and giggles, I uh, also got to talk to Mayor of Beertown. Um, we we texted back and forth a little bit, so just a random shout out. Keep it keep 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 the faith, buddy. Can he send me beer? <laughs> yeah, I, I imagine he could. The question is, will he? So. Um, I guess now we should go to news. We don't have any emails, uh, so if you would like, though, you can send us an email to the show at slscast.com and, uh, you know, follow us on Twitter at the SLScast. So, news then? News it is. All right, folks, here we go. It's the news! <laughs> And uh, first up for me, uh, let's see here, from EW.com, that would be Entertainment Weekly, uh, by way of Oliver Gettle, Ben Affleck has written his Batman script. That's right, folks. Batman's greatest strength is that he's always one step ahead, and it looks like the latest actor to play him has taken that lesson to heart. Batman v Superman star Ben Affleck has already written a script for a standalone movie about the Dark Knight, according to William Morris Endeavor co-CEO Patrick Whitesell, whose agency represents Affleck. Speaking to The Hollywood Reporter about how many movies Affleck has signed on for as Batman, he said, quote, He's contracted to do at least Justice League Part 1 and 2, so at least three times wearing the cape, end quote. Whitesell added, 
quote, there's a script that he's written that is a really cool Batman idea, so that's out there as an option, end quote. Um, the article goes on to talk about when he was first linked to Batman, etc., etc. Um, so please feel free to go to EW.com and check the rest of that out. It's actually pretty brief. What do you think there, Tim? Do you think it's just kind of something that he might just be shopping just for fun? Or do you think he will, Ben Affleck will seriously try and get this made? Well, based on interviews and in clips, or not clips, uh, or little tidbits that I've read. Right, what? (laughs) Clips that that I've, tidbits that I've read in like uh, articles and whatnot that are apparently quotes by him. I think he is serious, and based on what Zack Snyder has brought to the table so far, I, God, I really hope Ben Affleck does direct a Batman movie because I think I it would think... be cool. I mean, I don't know. I mean, if you've ever seen The Town, uh, this guy, Ben Affleck, knows how to direct a movie. And and uh, as much as... He's a great storyteller. And as much as I had my you know issues with Batman v Superman and everything, I did not have a problem with Ben Affleck as Batman. So... I'm to- I would be totally down myself. So yeah, he he's a filmmaker that understands like going to the movies mm-hmm. should be about being entertained and entertainment. So he can't he Argo's a thriller, but it's a very entertaining thriller. The town is a heist drama, but it's a very entertaining heist drama. I agree. All right, man. Well, what do you got for us? Since I saw Beauty and the Beast last week. I was reminded of an io9 article that I read about a year ago or so. Uh, and the article pertained to the lyricist for Beauty and the Beast, Howard Ashman. He passed away before the movie even was released due to AIDS. Uh, but the article was concerning him and the backstory of the opening song of Beauty and the Beast. And this is from io9.com, the heartbreaking story behind Beauty and the Beast's opening song. This is written by Catherine Trinacosta and was published on January 23rd of last year. It says this, Alan Menken, the songwriter behind Aladdin, The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, to name just a few, has given Entertainment Weekly the story behind a number of his most famous songs. Some are pretty basic, some are funny, and some tell of frustrating directors. But the one that is a laser-guided missile right into the fields is the one for Belle from Beauty and the Beast. Beauty and the Beast is dedicated to lyricist Howard Ashman, who wrote the songs with Mencken and served as executive producer on it, and who died eight months before it was released. The dedication reads, quote, To our friend Howard, who gave a mermaid her voice and a beast his soul, we will be forever grateful, Howard Ashman, 1950-1991, end quote. Now Mencken tells the specific story behind the opening number to Beauty and the Beast, which the sick Ashman was worried would never make the final cut. And Mencken says this, The story behind this is that Howard Ashman was HIV positive and wasn't telling anybody. He had been very quiet. And here we had written this crazy seven-minute opening song that was much more ambitious than anybody had asked for, and I remember his fear about everything in that moment. I remember Howard was very, very reluctant to send it out, thinking that we were going to be laughed at. He delayed sending it for two days. Finally, of course, we sent it, and Disney loved it. 
You didn't open an animated movie with a seven-minute number, but it redefined the form. We wanted to keep it very classical Mozart, very She Loves Me with a quiet opening, Little Town, It's a Quiet Village, and then it explodes, end all quotes there. And this is actually quoting an Entertainment Weekly piece that was interviewing him a year or so ago, and you can... uh, view that specific Entertainment Weekly piece through the io9.com article, the heartbreaking story behind Beauty and the Beast's opening song. And I gotta say, you know, um, Howard Menken went off and, of course, he did Aladdin, and uh, I think he did Hercules, and he's worked on Enchanted, and a number of other Disney films, but nothing quite sounds like the work that he did with Howard Ashman on Little Mermaid and especially Beauty and the Beast. A duo made in heaven. There you go. There you have it. You have the origins or the making, the -the behind-the-scenes tidbits of Beauty and the Beast's opening song. All right. Well, let's see here. Moving along to MSN Entertainment, which is, of course, just MSN.com. Uh, and this come to, comes to us by way of the Associated Press. Michael Douglas donating his film collection to New York Museum. And this is actually out of Rochester, New York. Academy Award winner Michael Douglas is donating his personal personal collection of more than three dozen film prints to Rochester's George Eastman Museum. Officials at the Photography Museum, located on the estate of Kodak's founder, say Thursday, uh, let's see, this is from March 31st, so a couple weeks ago, about three weeks ago, uh, that the Douglas collection of 35mm and 16mm prints, 37 in all, includes more than 30 that he starred in or produced. Museum director Bruce Barnes says Douglas was inspired to make the donation after after visiting Rochester last May to receive the George Eastman Award for his contributions to the film industry. Douglas won an Oscar for Best Picture for producing 1975's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and an Academy Award for Best Actor in 1987's Wall Street. Those two films are among the donated prints. Others include The China Syndrome, Romancing the Stone, and Traffic. That's right. Uh, Also, I'm going to jump in here real quick with um, some kind of sad news, actually, from TheGuardian.com. And this comes to us by way of Benjamin Lee. Uh, We have here, it says, Sam Rockwell, Alan Rickman's death, undid plans for Galaxy Quest 2. Rockwell says that Amazon were close to signing up the original cast members for a sequel to the sci-fi comedy um let's see here just jumping directly to the quotes it says quotes they were going to do a sequel on amazon end quote he said in a nerdist podcast quote we were ready to sign up and alan rickman passed away and tim allen wasn't available he has a show and everybody's schedule was all weird it was going to shoot like right now and how do you fill that void of alan rickman that's a hard void to fill end quote there um so, Tim, do you have anything that you would like to add about the Michael Douglas thing or any reaction to the fact that uh, it looks like there was going to be a Galaxy Quest sequel until the passing of Alan Rickman? I love Michael Douglas. I think cinema could use more of Michael Douglas. <laughs> they, he needs to make another basic instinct. Why? Because <laughs> he's Michael Douglas. Um, yeah, you know, I read about that also, and it's, it's kind of cool. It's, I mean, I don't know, necessarily know how 
well it would have turned out. But it also would have been fun to see the whole gang back together again, you know. I agree. It was it's a spoof off of Star Trek and they made multiple Star Trek movies. And it wasn't really I mean I don't I hate to say a spoof because it was its own thing, you know. So It was a, it was a start. It was it's what I have heard most accurately referred to as the best Star Wars fan fiction film. Like if Star Wars fans could really get together and make a Star Wars fan film, oh my god. <sighs> I'm sorry, I'm so tired. If Star Trek fans could get together and make a Star Trek fan film, this would be the best Star Trek fan film, Galaxy Quest. There you go. So, yeah. Oh, and you know what? I totally forgot to mention. I have a friend. This was something that happened that was really cool, and I just thought about it, and I totally wanted to tell you, and I'm just going to take the time and tell you now. Does it pertain to it has nothing to Galaxy do with Quest fucking anything? Literally has nothing to do with anything. Um, so for whatever that's worth, the uh, so I have this friend of mine, he, uh, one of the neighbors here in the cul-de-sac, and he does charity work um, where the foundation that he works for goes and does golf tournaments, goes and does all these kind of charity things where they take all, uh, sports memorabilia, uh, movie memorabilia, and stuff like that, and they auction it off. And he came across a an Avengers number four um, cover reprint, and the reprint's been blown up to poster. Well, I, I don't know, not like a big, huge movie poster size, but definitely like eighteen by twenty four. Um, and so it's a cover of the Avengers. It's got Captain America on it. It's got Iron Man. You know all this stuff, and. Uh, it is actually autographed by Stan Lee. What? And, cool. Yeah, and he was just like, here, you owe me a steak, dinner, and a six-pack. So I am now the proud owner of an autographed comic book reprint cover with Stan Lee. And it's like authentic. It's like authenticated and everything and glass framed and yeah. Going so how much are you going to sell it for? I'm waiting for Stan Lee to die. I'm just <laughs> and the kidding. funny thing, well, I'm I, never going to sell that thing. Are you fucking? Thing. Are you fucking? Kidding? I'm. Got, I got to get this fucking thing insured. <laughs> well, if you're wait till he dies, you. I mean, I don't know if wait is the right word. You might not have to wait too long. Maybe hang out. I'm just going to hang out until he passes away. <laughs> no, I mean, clearly this is not the only thing he's ever signed. So. Uh, you know, I'm sure there's a bajillion things he signed in the world, so. I'm sure he signed a, a few big D's. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Sooner or later, we'll move to big double D's. All right, I'm going to jump in with two pieces. One uh, pertaining to Sasha Baron Cohen in the new Queen movie, or the movie about Queen, Freddie Mercury. And I believe it was you, Matt, who was talking about this a couple months ago. Where Sasha Baron Cohen didn't want to do the movie because he wanted it to be a grittier film. This is what he was telling, like, Howard Stern, all this stuff. And he was saying that, oh, well, Brian May and, and the rest of the Queen members, they wanted the movie to be more about the band itself. And have Freddie Mercury die midway through the film and the movie carry on with the band's, I guess, renaissance, if you will. Well... According to the Mail on Sunday, 
Brian May had a response to what Sasha Baron Cohen said. He said this, Brian May, saying, quote, We had some nice times with Sasha kicking around ideas, but he went off and told untruths about what happened. Why would he go away and say that we didn't want to make a gritty film? Are we the kind of people who have ever ducked from the truth? I don't think so. We just decided that he wasn't right for the role for very good reasons, which will become apparent if you watch what he's done recently. It's obvious that it wasn't going to work. Him playing Freddy, it wouldn't suspend your disbelief. End all quotes there. I guess in the ads, we're hoping Ben Winshaw will do it. He's fabulous. He's a real actor. End quote. So, not only does Brian May, fantastic musician, had a rebuttal... But he also had a jab at Sasha Baron Cohen, saying that they made the right decision based on Sasha Baron Cohen's latest film, which is The Brothers Grimsby, which did absolutely horrendous. So I thought that was very interesting. And then next up, via Variety.com, Netflix lands Adam Wingard's Death Note starring Nat Wolf. This is written by Justin Kroll. Netflix is in final negotiations to pick up Adam Wingard's Death Note, continuing to bolster its feature film Slate. The pick stars Paper Towns actor Nat Wolf and Margaret Qualley, and was originally at Warner Brothers before being put into turnaround at the studio. STX and Lionsgate were among the other studios looking at the property, but Netflix is poised to come out on top with a June start date being eyed for production. While the deal is not expected to reach the same price levels as those for War Machine or Bright, the price should fall in the $40 million to $50 million range. Based on the Japanese manga series, Wolf plays a student who discovers a supernatural notebook that allows him to kill anyone simply by writing the victim's name. A cat-and-mouse game ensues when he's tracked by a reclusive police officer. Roy Lee, Dan Lin, Jason Hoffs, and Masi Oka are producing the project, which was previously adapted as a movie in its home country of Japan, where it spawned a sequel. End all quotes there. Matt, do you have any comments, questions about Sasha Baron Cohen's, or the rebuttal to what Sasha Baron Cohen said about the Queen movie? Or Netflix landing Adam Wingard's Death Note? I know you weren't a big fan of a Death Note movie when we talked about it some months ago. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I, I don't know. I think it has, a, with Netflix backing it, I think it, um, I guess if it's going to get made, it's got a better shot of being done um, being done right, at least, or as close to right as you can get it. So that's, that's I suppose, a pretty good sign. I will reserve, I will, I will say I am cautiously optimistic. And... Um, I don't agree with Brian May on everything, but by God, do I agree with Brian May on this. <laughs> so that's all I have to say about that. And uh, yeah, so due to time, though, I'm going to actually just call my news there. So if you have anything else you want to add, go ahead. I'm going to end the news with two very interesting sciency pieces of news. One of them, I, you be the judge of this one. Uh, via consequence of sound, Star Wars The Force Awakens sinks up to Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. Moon over, Wizard of Oz, there's a new album sync in the galaxy, written by Ben Kay. For years, Floydians have been syncing up Pink Floyd's classic Dark Side of the Moon with Wizard of Oz, what's affectionately referred to as Dark Side of the Rainbow. 
sees the record played simultaneously with the film revealing some pretty fantastical musical and lyrical coincidences that fit like cues to the movie. Now, Redditors have discovered another incredible sync-up for the album, this time in a galaxy far, far away. Apparently, three replays of Dark Side of the Moon in its entirety becomes the perfect soundtrack for The Force Awakens. According to Reddit, pressing play as the film's opening scroll ends, and the camera pans to the spaceship starts a synchronization that almost lines up perfectly with each act in the movie. And it goes on to give some examples. For instance, when Poe Oscar Isaac wakes up in Kylo Ren's torture chamber, the lyrics of The Great Gig in the Sky go, I'm not afraid of dying, any time will do. And the song's long scream happens right as Poe opens his own mouth. Uh, The song Time plays while we witness the repetitive mundanity of Ray's life making a living by scavenging old relics. Twice during the keep your hands off my stack line and money, someone grabs a lightsaber. First, it's Rey taking hold of Luke Skywalker's, then Han Solo grabbing Kylo's. And then the last one I will uh, mention here is that brain damage in almost its entirety seems to fit up with the movie's final scene as Rey makes her way towards Luke. Quote, the lunatic is on the grass, remembering games and daisy chains and laughs. Got to keep the loonies on the path. End that quote. And if you go to this article on consequenceofsound.net, and I'm sure you can even find this on, well, it's on Vimeo, actually, brought to us by TFA underscore D-S-O-T-M, I guess is the user, maybe. They have actually synced up the first eight minutes of The Force Awakens with the opening eight minutes of Dark Side of the Moon. And I must say, at least based on the eight minutes that I have actually watched, it is definitely coincidence. And I'm not just saying, like, oh, it's cheeky coincidence. Not at all. It's it's the opening especially. There's a lot of quick edits. And it just so, and it doesn't even fit the tone of the music either. So unless you are enjoying some liquor, or maybe 11 or 12 Coronas, Matthew, or even enjoying some pot, you might find some, you know, worthy similarities there, but not enough to really say, oh my god, this is the new Wizard of Oz sync. Matt, did you ever watch the Dark Side of the Moon Wizard of Oz sync up? Yep. Did it work for you at all? Yep. Well, well, well. And then (laughs) lastly, we're going to round this news out with some more science. D-News. Yes, not Dallas News, nor is it Dick News, but Discovery News via Discovery.com. This is an interesting one here. Artificial DNA stores one million copies of a movie. This is written by, not biotechnology, that's just the sub- page there and matt by the end of this i want to know what movie you would want stored in your dna 
But again, this is Artificial DNA stores one million copies of a movie, and it says this, a Technicolor scientist surrounded by the latest virtual reality technology inspects a vial containing a few droplets of water and one million copies of an old movie encoded into DNA. The company has come a long way since the Hollywood golden age when the world gazed in awe at the lush palette of The Wizard of Oz and Gone with the Wind provided by its three-strip cameras. Now celebrating its centenary year, Technicolor's laboratories are at the cutting edge of the science of filmmaking, leading a worldwide revolution in immerse entertainment. Quote, we are bigger today in L.A. than we were 70 years ago or 50 years ago, end quote, Technicolor Chief Frederick Rose said at a recent ceremony where he accepted a, quote, star of recognition, end quote, from the Hollywood Chamber of Commerce. Rose used the occasion at Technicolor's Sunset Boulevard Studios to showcase the company's latest jaw-dropping innovation, the encoding of movies in artificial, quote, non-biological, end quote, DNA. Jean Bolat, vice president for research and innovation, held up a vial barely bigger than a bullet containing a million copies of 1902 French silent film A Trip to the Moon, the first movie to use visual effects. DNA is almost unimaginably small. Up to 90,000 molecules can fit into the width of one human hair. So even such, a large library is totally invisible to the human eye. All you can see is the water in the tube. Quote, this, we believe, is what the future of movie archiving will look like. End quote. Bollitz said, Scientists have been experimenting with DNA as a potential storage medium for years, but recent advances in modern lab equipment have made projects like Technicolors a reality. The company's work builds on research by scientists at Harvard University, who in 2012 successfully stored 5.5 petabits of data around 700 terabytes in a single gram of DNA, smashing the previous DNA data density record by a factor of 1,000. Basically, Bolot's team digitized the A Trip to the Moon into data in the form of zeros and ones in computing's binary code and transcribed it into DNA code, which was then turned into molecules using lab dish chemicals. <sighs> Goddamn. That was more sciency than I care to pronounce correctly. But that is very interesting. The one question I have, well, I have multiple questions. I mean, this is kind of mind-boggling and unbelievable, at least in my mind. But does it lose any resolution? If you transport or transfer a 4K resolution video or a 4K video into DNA and then take it out of that DNA, will it lose any resolution? Or could you therefore improve rev resolution by, by doing so? That, that, is, that is a big question for me. I don't care about how they do it and the awesome science behind it. I want to know if the resolution sticks. Matt, do you have any comments, questions, or concerns regarding... Are, are you a DNA scientist? Do you know much about DNA to where you can answer my question? N not really. <laughs> I mean, it's fascinating. I'm glad that uh, there are people out there studying it. But, um, yeah, it's... 
I definitely did not have the question about whether or not, you know, resolution would suffer. Um, I've just been trying to think of the movie that I would want one million copies of in my DNA, and I suppose it's got to be Hard Ticket to Hawaii. So, <laughs> not Showgirls? No. You don't, want show, you don't want a million copies of Showgirls floating through your loins? No, I don't, I don't need a million copies of someone saying Versace <laughs> instead of Versace. But if you wish to read more about this, again, discovery.com, artificial DNA stores, one million copies of a movie. There's a whole nother, I'd even read one full page, but there are two full pages of this scientific bibble babble for your entertainment. Well, that definitely concludes the news and brings us to I'm the only one who hated it. All right, and this time on I'm the Only One Who Hated It, the movie that I have chosen is going to blow is going to blow your minds uh, at least most most people who watch this movie um I, i'm here to just shatter your childhoods the movie i have chosen for i'm the only one who hated it is 1986's labyrinth that's right the jim henson directed david bowie vehicle featuring the babysitter John, played by Jennifer Connelly, who has to go after um, her her little uh, half brother or whatever, her little charge, her babysitting charge, uh, gets sucked into the thing, whatever, blah blah blah. Now, here's the thing with this movie: I can totally respect that if you watched this movie when you were a kid and you enjoyed it and you grew up with it and it was a part of your childhood i'm definitely not trying to take that away from you the thing was is that i did not watch this when i was a kid my parents being ultra religious at the time uh you know thought this shit was the devil or whatever and i did not get to watch it until i was like 20 21 or whatever and my ex-wife um was like oh I found Labyrinth. We have to watch it. Because she was just going through some shit and found the VHS or whatever. And I'm like, okay, what's Labyrinth? And she's like, you don't know what Labyrinth? So I'm like, nope. She's like, oh, you got to sit down and watch it. So we sit down and watch it. And I, I, yeah, it's terrible. It's like, I mean, it's one of the worst fucking movies I've ever seen. And the... I mean, I get that Jim Henson was still visionary and, you know, a lot of the puppet stuff is pretty cool. But just because you can do cool effects with puppets doesn't mean that you know how to necessarily tell a great story. And this is a really, really dumb story. And on top of that, you also have some of the most piss poor acting ever. And the fact that it's voices... Ah, and this is after, like, most of the Muppet movies, and so you're kind of like, what the shit is going on? And then, like, the thing that, like, when I gave up on this movie, when I gave all hope on the movie, there's a, there's a particular musical number 
and David Bowie singing. And by the end of the singing, he's tossing little Toby up in the air and he keeps tossing Toby higher and higher and higher. And eventually you can tell he's basically just taking like a fucking rag doll by the ankle and just flipping it up in the air, like as high as the fucking studio, you know, uh, roof was, um, the, yeah. And I'm like, okay, I give up. This is dumb. I, you know, I don't even understand why, why we're even watching this anymore. I hate this movie. I just fucking hate the movie. And while, um, it has, it didn't do very well at the box office, and it actually got mixed critical reviews. But I happen to know that this is, this is a movie with a huge, huge, huge cult following. And there's just so many people who love this movie, um, and because they watched it when they were a kid. And I think that with the nostalgia glasses turned on, they just either don't recognize or don't care that the movie is just fucking piss poor. And, um, yeah, I guess I'm not part of the cult. I fucking hate this movie, and I realize that, you know, there is a reason for that, but even still, I can safely say that without being a member of this cult, I am the only one who hated it. Labyrinth. What do you got there, Tim? Well, I think my I'm the only one who hated it isn't isn't much worse. <laughs> It'll probably piss off the same a same amount of people. My movie is from 1979. It is based off a book written in 1969 by Saul Urich. Your Urich? Your Saul Urich? I don't know. But it is a film that was made for $4 million, for only $4 million, and it took in at the box office $22.5 million. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is Walter Hill's The Warriors which came out February 9th of 1979, distributed by Paramount Pictures. The Warriors tells the story of street gangs, of various street gangs in New York City who fight one another in hopes to be the gang that rules all the streets of New York City. That's a very accurate plot outline right there, story outline right? Maybe, maybe not. I haven't seen this movie in quite some time. And the reason why I wanted to talk about this movie is because I couldn't really talk about my original choice, which was My Big Fat Greek Wedding, because it was about half a star too good for it to really fall into the I'm the only one who hated it qualifications. And I, the reason why I was going to pick My Big Fat Greek Wedding, the first one, is because at the time... I didn't see it when it came out in 2002. It had a huge following. It made a shit ton of money at the box office. People loved the movie. They would keep going back to the movie theater to watch the movie for a second, third, fourth time. Even now, it is loved by people. And when I finally watched it this past week, I didn't love it. In fact, I had, I mean, I was picking out more, uh, more, more of its issues than I was the, you know, the good bits. And so I, it got me thinking, what is a movie, an older movie that I was, you know, 10, 20 years too late? I missed the boat. And The Warriors was the first thing that came into mind. Why is that? Because I remember before I saw the movie, people would, would talk about, their favorite quotes, and one of them is the Warriors come out to play as, a, as the, I don't know if he's a retard or what, clinking those little bells in the car, just, just taunting the Warriors. And people were saying it and quoting it as if 
that quotes the shit. That character is the shit. Oh, man, that's the best part of the movie. Oh, man, it puts chills down my spine even when I even when I say it, man. And, you know, and I watch it, and I go through a bunch of shit, and then I get to that part, and it's even more shit. And you just want the movie to be over with. Um, like I said, I'd be the first one to say that I haven't seen it in quite some time. It might even be worth to go back and watch it for a Did It Age Well I was, unfortunately, wanting to watch it again, revisit it again this past weekend, but uh, I I didn't have any time. But I do remember this movie very well by wanting to turn it off 20 minutes into the running time. Poorly acted, the story, couldn't get into it. Again, 20 years too late on my end. So that is why I am the only one who hated 1979's Walter Hill classic, The Warriors. Very good. All right, well, next week we are going to be doing an ultimate letdown. And it looks like we're doing a 420 edition of Ultimate Letdown. Because it's our 420 show that just so happens to take place... The week of 420. So, is this supposed to be a movie that I got high and watched and was really upset about it? Or a movie about drugs that was a letdown? No, it doesn't have... I mean, the movie doesn't have to be about drugs. Oh. I mean, I already know mine because I made it a point to watch this movie. I'm sure you do. You sent me the segment. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, to give you an example of mine, um, without giving away the title, is like last year on 420, I made it a point to watch this movie. Like, I've been saving it for the right moment and the right time, and I was told, ooh, you know, in, in that state of mind, this is a great movie to watch. And so I spent two and a half hours to watch this movie, after we recorded, actually, last 420, and it was a complete and total letdown because it turned out to be one of the most depressing, sour movies I've ever seen. Wow. Okay. Well. So it doesn't necessarily have to be about a tremendous buildup. I hope that your choice is not an ultimate letdown for these listeners who are now going to be waiting a whole week after being prepped and primed, and they may even go back and listen to the last year's episode. I mean, not that anybody does that, but they might. You know, It was Showgirls. It was Showgirls. <laughs> <laughs> Ultimate right. 420 movie to watch, Showgirls. <laughs> there you go. All right, well, without any further ado, that will bring us to the movies, will it not, sir? Movie it up. All right, folks, here we go. It's the movies. <laughs> your d on that movie yeah <laughs> this, this week's movies are hardcore henry eye in the sky and my big fat greek wedding too unless you're tim and you're so despondent over the first one that you don't see the second one so where do you want to start how about my big fat greek wedding too i give it five stars i loved it <laughs> i've got you marked as na don't worry about it <laughs> let's see here um okay 
Uh, I, unlike Tim, enjoyed the first movie. I did not want to see it when it first came out. I finally saw it when it came out on DVD. Jen bought it, made me watch it. It turned out I did like it. I have seen it pretty recently. It, for me, still holds up. I think uh, I would still maintain that it's probably like a 3.75 movie. It's got its flaws. It's nowhere near a perfect movie. But I think that just um, the heart of the movie is... It shows through, and I think it's a pretty well-written movie in terms of having a story, developing the story, concluding the story, and using good characters. But, um, you know, but again, it's not the best movie in the world. The thing is, though, so going into My Big Fat Greek Wedding 2, having been a fan of My Big Fat Greek Wedding, uh, I sit down and and I knew going in that the critics were not, you know really kind to it, um, but that the audiences were enjoying it. I will also say that it seems to me that the that probably the majority of the audiences that are going to this movie are like me and my wife. Uh, my wife, by the way, would give this a 4.5 out of 5, to give you an idea, um, were people who watched the first movie. So, okay. On that note, I really did enjoy this movie. Having been a fan of the first movie, watching the second, it was nice to see the characters again. Uh, it was, it was fun to watch the family dynamic as it's grown, but still stayed the same. And, um, just neat to, to revisit these, these characters and these actors and, you know, this particular story. Um, there's some there there's definitely it's cute and heartwarming um and and fun for people who enjoyed the first one i cannot overstate that enough fun for people who enjoyed the first one my review do, unfortunately it doesn't stop there <laughs> objectively this movie's really not very good and that's where the review is going to come down for me is because I'm going, because if I had to do this based on sheer movie making and sheer writing and everything, this movie would be like a two, seriously. But it's not. It's a 2.75 movie. And the reason why is because, again, I truly enjoyed it for what it was. But this movie suffers from severe tropes. Um, trying to, trying to force you to watch characters do the same things over again, but without growth. And when they do show growth, it's shoehorned in, um, and then sometimes just kind of dropped out of nowhere. Um, and a lot of the things that they use to try and make you laugh, while you will chuckle uh, and sometimes even legitimately laugh, you're laughing because you're laughing because you don't want to be disappointed by what you're, by what you're watching. So you're over investing into it, right? Um, and so you know you're you're kind of not being intellectually honest, and you kind of let the story take you there. 
even though the story's not good enough to get there on its own. And in a lot of ways, this movie rehashes itself, but it tries to do it in the terms of, you know, oh, but it's just like people who fall into the old routines because sometimes people do that in life, except that they're doing it in such a way that it is literally kind of like watching The Force Awakens, but from my big fat Greek wedding, if you, you know, if you get that. My, my big fat force. Yeah, awakens. my big fat force awakens. So <laughs> <laughs> that's like a that sounds like a, a the sequel to Jersey Boy on Boys. <laughs> Maybe it is. Um. So the um, and so while the movie does you know rekindle those feelings and everything like that uh i mean you can tell that most of the cast has had some serious work done in terms of like plastic surgery and whatnot and botox and collagen and this i mean and it's pretty obvious uh you also have like new characters introduced primarily in the form of uh paris who is uh tula and ian's daughter and you know, and, and, and so they just completely overplay the mortified teenager card and they use, and it's kind of like they use that to, as a springboard. And instead of letting it just happen naturally, they instead just force, Oh, look, big loud Greek family, big loud Greek family. And again, it works, but it works because you want it to work, not because the movie works on its own. If she's if she's the daughter, shouldn't she be used to it though? I don't know. Aren't you used to your family's idiosyncrasies, and then by the time you're a teenager, you're still mortified by your fucking parents? Uh, I don't know. I sure was. So I just hid and pretended like I didn't know who they were. Uh, so again, the where the movie works on its own truly is very very far and few between. Where the movie works because you desperately want it to work because you're reliving that memory from enjoying the first movie is far more frequent. Um, you will still have a good time if you had been a, a fan previously, but really and seriously, 2.75. Better than okay. Can't objectively say that I liked it, but I'm not going to sit here and give it a three or three and a half or whatever just because I had fun with my wife having a good time on a date night and watching this movie. So, 2.75 out of 5. And where would you like to go from here, Tim? How about Hardcore Henry? Okay. Hardcore <laughs> Henry. Uh, the VR tech demo. <laughs> First, you know, <laughs> FPS fucking POV shit that they decided It's to the 20 minute movie. short we wanted 10 years ago. That's right. Made into a 96-minute movie. Now, um, I, you know how I always talk about... Uh, okay, so I'm sorry. The film, 2015 science fiction action film, uh, and it stars Sharto uh, Copley, uh, Danila Kozlovsky, Haley Bennett, and Tim Roth for all of 12 seconds. Um, the... Okay, you know how I've, I've said that it's kind of like every other movie is a Charteau Copley movie that I like? Um, this is a Charteau Copley movie that I like. I, I mean, he, the, the, he plays like 250 characters in this movie, but 
you know, in terms of just playing a blatant stereotypical character, it was it was entertaining. You play or you play. You are basically this dude named Henry, a rebuilt super soldier who you are at least told this from your wife because she's telling you she's your wife and your memory is blocked out because you wake up because you're dead uh, or wake up after having been killed, which is done very graphically in the opening credit sequence. And then your wife is taken from you within the first five minutes and you have to go on this nonstop mission to go track her down. Um, Charteau Copley is this, uh, he, he, you very quickly realize that the, that he is more than meets the eye because he keeps dying in front of you, but then he keeps coming back and he never looks the same. <laughs> but it's obvious that it's him. Uh, I don't. I, I won't give anything away if you do decide to watch this movie, but that's kind of because it's kind of an integral key to the entire plot, such as it is. Um, the thing is with this movie is that um, it's just. It's just overly too long. I appreciate that that uh, the one thing I was really worried about, which was shaky cam, was truly kept to a minimum. And so I appreciated that. Although the idea behind it being a truly first person experience gets kind of gets kind of muddled more often than not. And then often that sense of immersion is blown. Like he has to wipe his, you know, he has to like wipe whatever dust, bullshit, water, some out of his eyes. And you can literally hear like a squeegee over a glass sound effect done on purpose. So it's like, why are you doing a squeegee over glass sound effect? Like you're wiping off a camera lens. If this is supposed to be your eyes. Um, so you get things like that. It's like, it's just like they were saying, you know, we have this really cool idea and you can feel like you're living a video game for an hour and a half. Well, you may as well just wait till you can go do star tours at Disney World or Disneyland or that stupid VR ride with the, with the dinosaurs whenever you go to like a, 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 you know, a county fair or state fair or something like that, because at least then the seats move and you can really feel like you're doing it. Outside of that, it's just pretty kind of dumb. Charteau Copley's myriad of characters um, is fun. And I think by the height of the movie in the last, say, 15 minutes there's a pretty cool scene uh that has you blowing up a lab and you kind of get to see this just network flow one after the other of all these different Charteau Copley's and that was pretty entertaining but then again the movie just falls into the same kind of thing so I give this one 2.75 um I applaud the effort it wasn't as terrible as I thought it was going to be um, they do some pretty neat things, but it's really just not worth, it's not worth going to see. It's a little better than okay, but I just legitimately cannot say that I truly liked it either. Um, but I did like Charteau Copley. Oh, and dear God, retarded fucking villain. Holy crap, this guy was in the running for displacing Lex Luthor for one of the worst villains I've seen this year. Or the worst villain I've seen this year. Anyway, 2.75 out of 5. What do you got there, Tim? 
Yeah, he is a god-awful villain. Probably the worst villain I have seen in many, many moons. Uh, it, what was he, where was he from? Was he from, like, the Netherlands or, or I guess, Sweden? But he I don't had, know. Like, I'm, I'm trying to figure out because, like, a lot of the shit seems Russian. Um, but Yeah, it takes place in Russia. Yeah, apparently. so I don't know if he's supposed to be Icelandic or something. But, uh, yeah, he's definitely... He's albino. Maybe that's the problem. I don't know. And, and the actor, whatever his name is, he is he's dedicated to the performance. And I'm sure he's a he's a fine actor, but goddamn, that character is awful. Everything from his motivations to him having the, these stupid teen young adult novel fan film levity powers where he can pick shit up and throw shit and he can fly around and all that crap and if he uses his powers too much he cries blood you know just bullshit like that he is a villain that i hate to fucking hate you know he's not like your grubers or any of your other great villains that you just love to hate because they're so bad that they're just so damn good no it's just poor acting but that's enough of him Whenever I was 10 years old, or even up into my mid-teenage years, I so wanted a first-person shooter-esque movie, or like a movie that really captures the feeling of a first-person shooter. I remember when the movie Doom came out, I never saw it, but I heard the movie was god-awful, so I didn't see it. But I was impressed that, oh wow, they finally came out with a movie that was very much like a video game. And so when I heard about this movie, I saw the original short film. I think uh, it was a uh, it was for a music video, and then they decided to turn to a movie. I thought, wow, this could be fun. The trailers made it look like it had a story for the most part. The trailers made it look like it had humor to it, and it does have humor, but the humor doesn't stick. And the humor doesn't stick because the movie doesn't know how to land. Any goddamn beat. I've talked about Shoot 'em Up, the Clive Owen film from 2008, many times on this show. I love it because the movie is nonstop action. You wait, I think by the time the opening of the movie starts, uh, maybe a minute, minute and a half, maybe two minutes, and then it's just full throttle action from beginning to end. The movie is great because it's great filmmaking. It's great storytelling, even though, you know, the story is, you know, it's about the bad guys wanting to find a baby and kill a baby. It's just ridiculous. But the movie was both funny and it landed its jumps. It stuck every landing on both the filmmaking, the action, and the storytelling. You can't have 96 minutes of pure mayhem. You need to have those beats. You need to have those rhythmic movements. Kind of like a great rock and roll album, a great metal album. You know, people will argue, oh, yeah, and all this stuff sounds the same, but if you sit down and actually listen to it and dissect it, there's more to it than it just being loud noise. And this is what this movie needed to be like. Yes, the filmmaking is impressive, but it's god-awful storytelling. And I am not being overdramatic. I'm not overstepping my boundaries in this review. It's god-awful storytelling, but impressive filmmaking. And that's pretty much it. I know I have a couple friends that are into gaming, 
Uh, they're into action movies, but they're hardcore into gaming, and they absolutely love this movie. One, a friend of mine, uh, I read on Facebook that he had, he was grinning from ear to ear, from beginning to end, and he recommended it to anybody. So I know a lot of people out there will love it, but if you're into movies that need extra levels to it, you need more substance. And again, I'm, I I gotta stress, I'm not looking for drama or anything like that. I just need those rhythmic beats within the film. I need the humor to stick. It felt like they just kept reaching out, hoping to grab something. They were free-falling out of a plane, trying to open their parachute, but they keep failing each time. But yet, they played off as if they opened the parachute, or they stuck that landing. For example, there's a scene where he has to get somewhere, or there's a segment where he has to get somewhere, and he sees a horse. And as he's approaching the horse, the Magnificent Seven theme song kicks in. And then he jumps on the horse, and then he falls off the horse, and that's the end of that. There is no fucking point to have the Magnificent Seven theme song. There is nothing else in the movie to set that up. You know, there was never anything else like that. There, there were no retro callbacks to old classic films in the movie. And of course, for a movie like this, it's not one cohesive take, like Birdman or whatever. It definitely goes through a period of time. I, it's, I mean, it's, I think it all takes place within a day or so, I can't remember. But there are obvious cuts, and some of those cuts are too obvious. And I'm not one to really kind of bash on that at all, or bash on poor effects when it's like a lower-budget film. But this movie took some shortcuts that I think were a little too noticeable when it came to the progression of the mayhem in the storytelling or I guess the mayhem because you can't really call it I guess storytelling so uh, Hardcore Henry Matthew you gave it 2.75 out of 5 I am gonna land on 1.5 out of 5 there you have it all right well that leaves us with Eye in the Sky, uh, the 2015 version. Turns out there's like a 1976 version or some shit, I don't know. Anyway, let's see. Eye in the Sky, 2015 British thriller film starring Helen Mirren, Aaron Paul, Alan Rickman, and Barkhad Abdi. Uh, the film is directed by Gavin Hood and written by Guy Hibbert. Uh, this is a film that covers... Um, all of the different aspects that go into making critical decisions in today's drone strike age. And stars uh, Helen Mirren as uh, Colonel Powell, and she's in a room in Sussex, in, a, in like a mission briefing room. And uh, they've got these... Um, uh, extremists that are planning some shit and they're like, you know what, we need to see what's going on so we can see if we can capture them and get extra intel and maybe find the leader of these extremist groups. Um, they've, while that's going on, there's also the, um, the Barkdad Abdi is, is playing a, you know, Barkdad Abdi, you know, uh, the name might not ring a bell exactly, but that's the look at me, look at me, I'm the captain now. So that that's him. Um, 
he's he's kind of like the inside man on the ground setting up the the, the bugs for video and you know all the kind of stuff um well it turns out there's actually a little bit more at stake than what they initially thought that there's uh suicide bombs being suicide bombings being planned and now this goes from a capture to a kill scenario and they are now working with uh Aaron Paul's character he's the drone um the pilot in like Nevada or wherever. So you can see just how global, uh, globally this thing starts to work into it. Um, now they're having to deal with civilian casualties and, um, it turns out that there is a little girl there who's actually close by. And it's like, guys, wait a minute. You know, there are people in the vicinity who are not going to make it if we blow this place up. And so now the dilemma becomes, do we blow this place up and kill civilians, however limited they may be in the process and get all this negative press, or do we not do anything and let these suicide bombers go off and kill a whole bunch of people, but at least, you know, we didn't do it. So now we're not responsible, even though we're culpable because we didn't do anything to stop it. And then you watch this movie go from the chain of command. Uh, I know, you know, so Alan Rickman is coming in because he's going to have to, you know, he, he comes in and, and he's got a different viewpoint as a general. Uh, they go to like the secretary of like the prime minister in, in your, of Britain, they go to like the secretary of state for the United States. I mean, so basically it's just watching the buck get passed and passed and passed. Um, and then, so do they, don't they, will they, won't they, how does it play out? And that's why you watch the movie. So, all of the performances in this film are great. And I was honestly really surprised with Aaron Paul's performance because outside of Breaking Bad, uh, I'm not saying he's a one-trick pony, but I think that sometimes um, you do just kind of naturally fall into a character. And I think in terms of Breaking Bad, he just did a fantastic job. But he hasn't really done much outside of that yet. And the Need for Speed movie was not a good start. So... I was very impressed with his performance. I think if Alan Rickman had to go out on a role, um, this was an amazing role for him to go out on. I know that there has... Um, uh, let's see here. I am reading here from Wikipedia, which is quoting Richard Roper on Alan Rickman. Uh, this is, quote, Mr. Rickman was never nominated for an Academy Award, and it's probably a long shark long shot for a posthumous supporting actor for this film, but his work here is a reminder of what a special talent he possessed, end quote. And again, that was for uh, Richard Roper. Uh, I could not agree with that quote more. And it just shows you what an amazing job he did. And I wouldn't say see this movie just because he's in it. Um, the only thing that I don't like about this movie, and here's what really hurts it in my opinion, is while... While the movie does a good job of explaining just exactly what goes into a decision like this and how sometimes they're just, um, you're, all of your options are bad, but you still have to pick one. (sighs) 
I just don't think that the movie, I, I don't think the movie sold it. At the end of the day, I think that the movie tried to play a little bit too much of past the buck, and I think it tried to 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 game it so that you kind of are forced to feel a certain way. And I understand that certain times and certain movies are that's what they're there for. They're to ignite the passions and inflame those things and be thought provoking. But I just feel like it gives all of these performances are good and all of the characters are good but and and I like that it gives the insight into what these situations can look like i just feel like maybe this is one of those times when the ending should have been left blank um to really drive it home to give that to to offer that what would you have done what would you have done differently because at the end of the day, this movie does draw draw a conclusion. These people do make a decision, and you watch the repercussions of that decision play out. And I'm not saying that they're doing it for political gain or that they're you know that they're trying to bash anyone's side. Because again, it, I I felt overall very even handed. They weren't trying to attack anybody or or you know say like in general like oh war is bad and these people no no no. I mean war is a nasty business and there's a reason why people don't want to see it and don't want to watch it. Um, so I, I don't want to be uh, even you know I want to be even handed about that as well. But I think that. I believe that the film would have been a lot more effective if they had left that ending open-ended to build up to a decision of, oh my God, I wonder which way they went. Because I think it would have been able to invite a lot more discussion, a lot more, um, and cause a lot more of a thought-provoking response. And I think it would be really interesting because it would allow you as the viewer to even further discuss those characters and go, oh man, I don't know. I think, I think Car- Colonel Powell would have would have done it this way, or you know, I think you know, I, I think Steve Watts would have, you know, Lieutenant Watts that's played by Aaron Paul. I think I think he I think he would have aborted, you know, um, but they didn't, and I didn't, and I just didn't like the way that it played out because I think that that destroyed. <sighs> what they were trying to build up to. So good performances, good characterizations, ending really hurt it, but it is a good eye-opening look into the way these things play out and why these decisions are so hard. 3.75 out of 5. Check it out. Bring us home there, Tim. I thoroughly enjoyed this movie. Uh, We reviewed another drone moral movie uh, last year with Ethan Hawke in it called Good Kill, Good Kill was more of a family drama, I think, than a movie dissecting moral stances of drone warfare. Even though that it, that it plays a big part of it, how it uh, really affects Ethan Hawke, who plays the a drone pilot psyche, you know, making all these heavy decisions. Not necessarily making the decisions, but being the one to push the button and drop the bombs and all that stuff. This one plays more towards choices the choices that are made and what influences those choices what can influence those choices whether they are big or small small being pedestrians smaller being 
child pedestrians being in the path of a weapon. This movie had a real and honest feeling to it that I couldn't help but love. It's an entertaining movie. I and it's one of those movies that that just feels real to it where you know you know it happens. You know in the back of your mind this happens. I don't know if on a daily basis, on a weekly basis even, but you know this particular choice that these guys have to make has been made, I'm sure, hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of times. And I, too, felt this movie was incredibly even-handed when it came to politics. Uh, You have one side saying, yes, kill, kill these people. Don't take innocent lives into the equation. And you have the other side where they're saying, no, we have to do this. I'm not going to I'm not going to completely say no to doing this, but I'm not going to say it. So let's just go to the higher ups. Let's see what the higher ups will, will say. And so the movie plays on a lot of different levels. You have the people that say yes, you have the people that say no, but then you have the people that are saying no only because they don't want to take the blame for it. You don't want it to look bad on them. And the movie, again, makes fantastic points with politics, but it also makes a relative points towards social media and connoisseurs of news and how choices and decisions are made because of what might be said on Facebook or on YouTube or video that might be posted on YouTube. You know, so it's very interesting and very even-handed and honest I, too, I mean, really the only problem I had with the movie is not the choice itself. I personally think how they handled the choice is, again, real and very effective. I guess my problem lies in, I'm not going to spoil it, but I really can't go into specifics without spoiling it. But it also pertains to the ending of the movie as well. In the choice that they made, I mean, I'm talking about a filmmaker's choice, not the choice of the characters. The particular choice I'm talking about that the filmmakers made was done specifically to evoke an emotion of some sort. And I kind of felt that was cheap. It cheapened the movie. It took away from the real life to it when I think the audiences could have made their own choices or their own decisions as to what happened. I'm not talking about the choice that the commanders and the generals and the drone pilot had to make. I'm talking about something different. But overall, I thoroughly enjoyed the movie, even though a couple choice things cheapened it. Right now, I'm going to give it a 4.25 out of 5. I'm looking forward to watching this movie again and hopefully giving it a higher rating. But for right now, 4.25 out of 5. Eye in the sky. Right on, right on. Okay, well then that brings us to the end of the movies. Next week's movies are going to be Paprika, Fantastic Planet, and Midnight Special. And with that, I believe that brings us to the spiel, does it not, sir? Spiel on! All right, well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast, and you can find us at SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. You can even follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can, of course, follow me. This is Matt on Twitter at Nitwit12345. You can also climb aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that is your 
your heart's desire. Also, don't forget you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. So until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to John Corbett, I get to say this. Acting is a win-win situation. There is no risk involved. That's why I get tired of hearing actors who try to make out that there's a downside to it. Fame is an odd thing. It bugs you a little bit, but it's really not bad. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next week. again for listening to the SLS cast with your hosts Matt and Tim. Remember that you can find us at slscast.com at the SLS cast for Twitter, also on Facebook and you can always subscribe on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>